the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. As much as we talk about the issue of radical Muslims, uh, what has happened in our relationship with uh, America and Islam, even even the church and Islam down through the years, um, it's been easy to be engaged in the process of fighting Muslims or fighting radical Islam. Uh, The problem is, as we're fighting them, are we doing anything to win them? Uh, You know, at the core, uh, we can all, I think, agree that this comes down to a heart issue. Um, how do we go about uh, not fighting Islam singularly, but engaging Islam in an effective means that uniquely from a Christian perspective can do something to change lives? Well, that is the topic of a new book written by my next guest. Um, he was born and raised in Lebanon, brings some unique perspective to all of this, uh, heartily uh, endorsed by our friend Hank Hanegraaff um, and uh, Christian Research Institute. He is George Husney. The new book is called engaging islam and george great to have you on the program thank you very much for having me you know this is almost like uh you know last stand at the okay corral kind of relationship certainly between uh, the west and islam and, and even more specifically for purposes of our conversation tonight between the church and islam um i think that there's been um a, a growing sense of fear and frustration uh, amongst the Christian community, as we've seen increased uh, uh, battles going on for uh, Christian freedom in many countries. We know what's happening with the Coptic Christians, for example, in Egypt mm-hmm. right now and things of this sort. But, you know, in the end, uh, whether we're talking about Muslims or Buddhists or atheists or those that would consider themselves undecided, it really comes down to uh, the responsibility that we cannot avoid of the Church to to reach out and love Muslims for Christ. Yes, you are absolutely right. I want to, at the outset, uh, say that there are two approaches, basically, to Islam. There's a political approach and there's a human approach. Of course, uh, politicians have to make decisions what to do with terror, what to do with the threats, and so on. But uh, there's a large body of uh, Christians and believers here who uh, encounter day-to-day many Muslims in the workplace, uh, in the marketplace, in schools, everywhere. And those people in the majority are not going to put a bomb around themselves and blow you up and blow themselves up. They're just ordinary human beings. So I like to separate between Islam as a system, which in my opinion as a system is evil and uh, frightening, 
But as people, uh, they're not, and we uh, need to love them and care about them and bring the gospel to them. All right, with that is kind of the the um, setting of the stage, so to speak, the, the terms of, of engagement here. Let's talk about the challenge of engaging Islam. Uh, first, maybe you can kind of give us a profile. Uh, we, we hear about the radicalization of Islam, and there's an impression yes. that this is representative of all of Islam mm-hmm. across the world. Uh, help us, from your perspective, uh, George, gain some understanding. When we talk about Muslims, who are we talking about here? Well, from my experience of uh, 45 years working with Muslims and traveling all over the Muslim world, um, I see that the radicals are a minority, but they're the vocal minority. They're the ones who cause the, the news and trouble and all that. But the majority, 70 to 80 percent, are moderates or secular. And those people, their profile is just like the profile of any other human being. Uh, they want to go to work and go home to their families and raise a family and live in peace. But also there's something new, I believe, in the last 10 years since September 11, 2001, that Muslims are beginning to uh, open their hearts to alternatives to Islam. There's a huge... Uh, influx of people into the church, into Christianity, uh, by the influence of radio and TV and uh, uh, Internet and, and the shuffling of people around the world by, through globalization, traveling, and seeking education. We have almost a million international students in America, about 40% of them are Muslim, and they're coming uh, face-to-face with Christianity, so they're much more open than ever before. Are there aspects of Islam that are perhaps common to, say, Christianity in in the sense that we have some Christians who were raised in a Christian home, all they've known is Christianity and the church mm-hmm. their entire life, um, and they're in some respects uh, maybe more Christians because they're following in their parents' footsteps. As I say, they've never really explored any other world religion, uh, the degree to which they might be engaged in the church, whether they're you know gung-ho active believers or just marginal Christians will vary from certainly from family to family. Then we have those that um, that came to Christianity, uh, and decidedly so, from either another uh, religious practice or belief, or maybe none whatsoever that said, I've investigated the claims of Jesus Christ in the Bible, and I have come to accept those claims uh, as truth and, and engage in a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What of the Muslims? Are, are there different flavors, so to speak, at that level? Well, definitely. Uh, pretty much every Muslim is a cultural Muslim. And then you add to it either political Muslims or religious Muslims. Uh, Islam as an identity um, e- includes even people who are atheists. They don't believe in God, and yet they're called Muslim because that's their cultural identity. And then you come to the others who are religious. Some religious people uh, just uh, treat uh, religion as something that they want to do to gain forgiveness and gain heaven and so on. Others are political, and the religio-political group is the one that's most uh, dangerous in regard to terrorism and so on, because they base their politics on their religion. But not uh, all religious people are political, and that uh, leaves us with people just like in Christianity, very diverse, very different, uh, open-minded, seeking to understand uh, the culture they're in, for example, the U.S. or Europe or where they may be going. That gives us many open doors to develop relationships and have friendships with them. 
and share the gospel. And many of them are coming into our churches and uh, becoming Christians. If you've just joined the conversation tonight, uh, George Husney is with us tonight. A look at his new book, Engaging Islam. By the way, this book, uh, newly published by uh, Treeline Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a time out at this juncture, come back to more of the conversation. As we continue to understand the, the profile of um, the variety of, of different flavors, so to speak, of Islam, how do we go about reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that and more as our discussion continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to our conversation. With me tonight is author George Husney. His book is called Engaging Islam. We're attempting to do that uh, just tonight. He serves, by the way, as an adjunct professor at Denver Seminary and is the founder and director of Horizons International, an outreach ministry to Muslims. Uh, A look tonight at uh, better understanding the profile of who Muslims are and then uh, armed with that information, some tools to better engage and ultimately evangelize Muslims uh, in an effective way. Um, we talked a little bit about some of the um, the commonality, frankly, with the background, whether they're cultural, they've experienced or come into Islam through a family or might in some cases have uh, converted to it. It, it strikes me um, as notable, uh, George, that we see Islam tending to cut across a lot of cultural lines in that we have, well, the world's most populous a Muslim nation is, is not in the Middle East, it's in Indonesia. We have Arabs that are Muslims, we have Persians that are Muslims, although not all Persians are Muslims, neither are all Arabs. That's correct. You are very true. Well, the biggest country in the world, I mean, a Muslim country is Indonesia, and the second biggest is the more surprising is India. <laughs> so before we get to the Middle East, we have... Uh, uh, two or three major countries, uh, and then we come to Turkey and Persia and then Egypt and so on. How do we get past a problem that I think a lot of us have, um, certainly to a greater degree, uniquely as Americans in a post-9-11 environment, but for a lot of individuals that look at what Islam has done to our country, mm-hmm. the violence, the unrelenting, unrepenting approach to all of this. This is not even a let's sit down and talk, can't we negotiate? This is our way or the highway kind of thing, you know, the the, right. the old adage within Islam that they're either going to, you know, convert in a friendly fashion or do so, uh, you know, at the point of a knife. Um, yeah. how, how do we as, as Christians and Americans move ourselves past what I think for a lot of us is an innate fear of Muslims? Well, the, uh, the solution uh, is to think of those terrorist activities as political uh, Islam. And uh, if you are a politician, of course, getting, uh, engage yourself in, on that level. Make sure the country is safe and protected. But most of us are not going to be in that position. Most of us are going to meet a Muslim on the street or in our workplace, and we need to uh, treat them with love. Let's not impose on them. Uh, the uh, the anger, the hatred, and so on that uh, belongs to the terrorists. Uh, I believe uh, friendship is um, a first step towards people. 
most Muslims in America uh, feel uh, prejudiced against, feel that Christians don't love them, they hate them, uh, frown at them. If you see a woman veiled, uh, people uh, look away from her or gaze weirdly at her and so on. Uh, it would make a huge impact if you just go to a person like this and say hello. And if they are guests in the country, welcome them to the country and begin to chat with them and even invite them over to your house. Uh, our purpose as Christians is to be light in darkness, light to the nations, and to love our enemies um, without being naive about it. But uh, there's plenty of uh, Muslims who are not frightening, who are not threatening us. Those people need Christ, and we need to share uh, before we share Christ, we share our meal, we share our uh, a handshake, we share a smile with them, and develop a relationship with them. All right, let's talk about the development of that relationship. You know, oftentimes that has to begin, like in any case, when you're you're trying to reach someone, um, establishing some level of trust. Yeah. Um, when there is fear, when there is lack of knowledge and understanding, um, mm-hmm. all of these elements conspire to create an atmosphere that is significantly lacking in trust. Uh, how do you advise folks to begin kind of crossing over this bridge and, and beginning to establish that sense of trust? Well, you, you'll know quickly when you begin to be friendly with somebody if they want to reciprocate or not. And uh, you can't guess uh, what agendas they have, but I believe... We need to, uh, anyway, engage them uh, and become uh, friendly and friends with them. Um, let me get real. There are so many here. There are hundreds, even thousands in America who have to come to Christ. And I did a survey among 100 Muslim converts, and I asked them, what are the major factors that led you to become Christians? A hundred percent, every one of them answered some act of kindness or love by a Christian. Mm. And uh, there are others that take something else, for example, dreams and visions. Sixty percent of those hundred have had a, a dream or a vision. So typically I go to a Muslim now, even in a park, I say, have you had a dream of Jesus? And if they have, then they're wide open to discussing uh, about Christianity and why they had this dream. Maybe God is calling them. And oftentimes the dreams actually contain uh, a message, follow me, by uh, uh, a man uh, dressed in a white robe and uh, walking away and looking back and asking them to follow him. So there are a lot of people who are curious, open, seeking. Uh, we can just engage them and find out uh, where they are. I call that diagnostics. You diagnose uh, who you're dealing with. And uh, if there's a reason not to trust, move on to somebody else you can trust. Let's pause on that point. When we come back, I want to get down to kind of the nitty-gritty. You know, as so often true when it comes to just good basic outreach or evangelism techniques, you know, find some kind of a common ground, um, some kind of a a common ground upon which you you can locate a starting point to get the dialogue going or to begin moving the dialogue toward things of the Scripture, things of the Lord. How do we find that common ground? Is there any? Many might argue there's none whatsoever, but is there really? Let's talk about this as we continue our conversation tonight. With me today is the author of a new book called Engaging Islam, George Husney. Back to more of our conversation as we continue. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the program and to our conversation with uh, our guest tonight, George Husney. A look at engaging Islam, and uh, the book hardly endorsed, as I mentioned earlier, by um, Hank Hanegraaff. He serves, by the way, um, George does, as adjunct professor at Denver Seminary and is founder and director of Horizons International, an outreach to Muslims. Uh, no doubt in your ministry work, uh, George, um, as it is, I think, common for trying to reach out and, and share the love of the gospel with anyone, finding some kind of commonality, some common ground is critically important. Explain to us, uh, for the uninitiated, George, the common ground, the starting points, uh, some of the keys that can be utilized if you want to share your faith in a loving, non-confrontational fashion with a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend that happens to be Muslim. Well, thank you for this question. It's very significant. Uh, when I approach Muslims, um, I find them much easier than a nominal Christian. Nominal Christians feel that they know enough. Many of them just argue and are skeptical, agnostics, and so on. Generally, Muslims believe in the existence of God. They don't really question his existence. They believe a lot of things that we also believe. They have beliefs about Jesus, about hell and heaven, and so on. However, there are three basic needs Muslims have that the Quran does not give them, or Islam doesn't give them. And I usually begin with those. For example, if I meet a Muslim, and we're talking about all kinds of things, and he tells me or she tells me they pray five times a day and they fast and do all these things. So I say, if you do these, are you sure you're going to heaven? They say, oh, no, God knows. We don't know. We'll never know. So even on the top level, the highest level of religious devotion, you'll find people saying, we do all these things and we still don't know. So they have eternal insecurity, and we need to give them that security and assure them that God uh, can guarantee them eternal life. And I give uh, usually uh, 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 an analogy. I ask if you drive a car, don't you pay for insurance and count on the insurance covering any accidents, any problems? And usually say yes. Say, well... How come a human agency, like an insurance company, is more reliable than God and your religion? And many people are shocked by this question, and that opens them up to uh, trying to understand what the Christian message is. This is one. And I have two other areas. If you want, uh, just run by them. Uh, please do, because one, one that comes to mind, and give me some, some insight here if I'm, if I'm kind of off the mark on this, um, for Muslims that that think of God as someone out there to be Hello, feared, far away. exactly, yeah. and and then a Christian come along and and talk about knowing God and the personhood of Jesus Christ personally, and a loving, kind, compassionate God who sacrificed His only begotten Son, yes. that yes. through which we can be saved have our sins forgiven, and most importantly, uh, then to walk in fellowship and relationship restored with that loving God, it would seem to me, at least from what I know about Islam around the periphery, that these ought to be some keys that would be extremely fascinating yeah. to, to a Muslim. More than fascinating. They touch a chord in the heart because there is that need for intimacy with God, which they do not have. Their prayers are dry, ritualistic. You go to a mosque and see people bowing up and down. Look at their faces. Do you see any smile? Do you see any happiness? Do you see singing, rejoicing? 
you see uh, fear, you see guilt on their heads. They're trying to satisfy God or appease Him with all these rituals or all these things. It's a works-oriented, more similar to the Jews, but even worse than that. Because even in the Jewish tradition, Old Testament, there's talk about not just uh, worshiping God with the mouth, but with the heart, circumcision of the heart, and so on. But uh, another major area is uh, need for forgiveness. In Islam, there is no assurance of forgiveness. Even if you repent, even if you a hundred times pray over over asking God to forgive you what you've done, there's no such assurance. So they live in guilt. And uh, we need to show them that God loves them, and uh, will forgive them. One great image Muslims are very attracted to is God as a father. You mentioned that yourself. I remember a story of an Egyptian woman who was 25 years old, uh, covered completely, and she was passing by in her country, Egypt, a church, and she heard some music. So she went in covered. She knew that nobody would figure out who she is. So she watched from the back, and there was a choir director who was praying, and he said, Our Heavenly Father. When she heard that, that blew her away. And uh, that led to her investigating Christianity. She says, I want this father. There's also a book written by a Pakistani noblewoman. Uh, I dared to call him father is the name of her book. And she had the same experience when she heard that God can be her father when she was told all her life that he is so unapproachable in fact, one uh, Muslim scholar wrote in a book that uh, it, don't you even attempt to know God because pursuit after God will only harm the seeker than help him. So, uh, yeah, we have an amazing good news that God loves you. God wants to forgive you. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants to give you eternal life if you would only accept uh, his provision for salvation, Jesus Christ. And I've found many who are more than excited to receive that message. You know, I've also heard it said, uh, the, the perception by some Christians, that they're going into um, an opportunity to share the gospel, uh, feeling very much ill at ease, the sense that, gee, uh, Muslims talk about praying to Mecca five times a day. Yeah. Uh, there's much talk about the influence of the Quran. Uh, the sense, perhaps, that 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 Muslims, by the very nature of the, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Not not rigidity. That's not the right word. But the the structure of yeah, uh, the religion uh, would would tend to be. I mean, how many Christians do we know that pray five times a day? I bet there are a few out there that even do it once. Yeah. So there's that sense, I think, among some Christians that, gee, I go into this battle uh, in in sharing my faith at a huge disadvantage because certainly. The Muslim knows their scripture much better than I even know mine. Is that necessarily true? No, and that's not at all true. Uh, one proof of <laughs> that is not true is that 80% of Muslims cannot read the Quran because it's in Arabic, and you can only read the Quran in Arabic. You can only pray in Arabic. And, uh, for example, you mentioned Indonesia. 200 million people don't know Arabic. Uh, India, 160 million people, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, they have to pray in a foreign language. Like like if in the church now, all of a sudden, uh, the, our pastors decide that we should no longer pray in English. We should go back to the Greek and Hebrew 
read our Bibles in Hebrew and Greek. How many Christians would really know their Bible if they had to read it in Hebrew and Greek? So most Muslims are illiterate in their religion, but they do know some things that are commonly held, commonly known, the five pillars, the six articles of belief. But these are taught sort of by rote. And you're not really required to understand Islam. You just need to be uh, doing the things that the Islamic tenets require. So that makes it really easier for us to approach them, and they're less frightening than we think. You encounter, of course, people who are uh, uh, polemic. By polemic, I mean confrontational, and they tell you the Bible is corrupted and we can't trust it, and Jesus didn't die on the cross and so on. But in 45 years of working with thousands of Muslims, I've had very few uh, such encounters. I've even held um, what you call debates and uh, give lectures in public in Muslim countries where hundreds of Muslims come to theaters, and I come up uh, on the podium and speak about the contrast between Jesus and Muhammad, and people thank me. Even imams have thanked me for enlightening them about uh, who Jesus is from the Bible and so on. So uh, there are two ways of looking at uh, Muslims. One is uh, fear, and uh, one is more hope and uh, positive thinking. And that's, I choose to do that, especially that I've seen so many of them come to know Christ. My full-time work is with Muslims. I personally am engaged. I just don't write books. That's my job. I'm, if you read my book, you'll see, uh, I don't know how many stories are there, but almost every page has a story or two about my own encounters with Muslims. And I find this to be really exciting to see so many coming to know Christ and having a transformed life and excitement about life uh, as they meet Jesus. And, of course, this book, by the way, can become a wonderful tool, a great resource for you in, in learning not just uh, what Muslims believe, why they believe it, some of the differences between those that are more religious-leaning versus more cultural, uh, and then, too, most importantly, is some of the tools and information that you need uh, to better develop a relationship, develop a sense of trust, and then ultimately the opportunity to share your faith. The uh, last four chapters of the book are about how to engage practically, the kind of questions to ask, and if they ask you questions, how to answer them. It's quite practical, uh, with stories illustrating how I have done it with uh, different people. And believe me, it's not so difficult. I, I want to add one more thing. The most important thing in drawing people to Christ is the spiritual arena. One uh, Saudi guy came to me and said, tell me about the Trinity. I'm confused. Tell me about Jesus being the Son of God. I explained for hours and over two weeks, and he didn't get it. So finally I said, look in Matthew 16, and we read it together, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter stood up and shouted, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, hey, who told you that? not flesh and blood, it's not human beings, it's my Father in heaven who revealed that to you. So I asked the guy, pray and ask God to reveal his character to you, who he is, his nature. And he did. A week later, he comes back to our regular meeting once a week, and he says, hey, I'm past that right now. Teach me the Bible. Mm. 
so it is a spiritual thing. No one will come to me unless the Father draws him, Jesus said. And, um, and the, it's the Holy Spirit's role to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's our job to, as clearly as possible, share the gospel, share your testimony, read the scriptures, parables, stories, whatever. Engage them with the word of God, with the good news. And uh, Jesus warned us that not everybody will accept. He said, many are called, few are chosen. Few are chosen. That's right. Yeah, and we're glad for the few that are chosen. Even one out of a hundred, the heavens will, uh, will celebrate uh, for the uh, repentance of one, uh, Luke fifteen ten. Amen. George Husney, we appreciate so much the time and the great resource, again, available to you, Engaging Islam, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area or through Amazon. Dot com. And again, our thanks to author George Husney for being with us on this edition of Life. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You've probably seen a lot of the hubbub as mainstream media has done their best to spoon-feed news of uh, Caitlyn Jenner, also known as Bruce Jenner, making the debut on Vanity Fair cover, posing as a transgender woman in lingerie. It's the first we've seen of Jenner in his new gender since the former Olympic athlete announced plans to transition to life as a woman at the age of 65. And for many of us, a reminder of... Well, just a confused and changing society in which we live, a nation that for those of us that perhaps are over, over 50 wonder what's happened to our country and uh, wanting to at one level engage in the fight to make America a Christian nation again, and yet on the other hand, maybe being compelled to ask an even more important question, and that is how can we, right where we live and work and play and engage, do a better job of engaging the culture all around us. There was a time in an age when you had to get on an airplane with a passport and travel to another part of the world to engage in the mission field. And today, the mission field is literally right out your front door, almost anywhere you live in America, and certainly anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what of this idea of living missionally right where you live today? Well, we've invited... Jim Ramsey, the Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, to join us with some insights uh, to that very question. And Jim, a delight to have you on the program. It's good to be here. First, I'm curious about your own journey. You left high-tech for the mission field. I understand you and your family spent uh, 10 years as missionaries in Kazakhstan, and that's uh, that's quite a transition. Yes, it was. Um, we we felt called to mission from from an earlier age, but it wasn't like a, a major, you know, sudden surprise to us. We always knew we wanted to serve, but the Lord had provided the IT work as something I could do while I was preparing, working through seminary, and we were starting our family. But it was a change. We uh, were in our early thirties when we when we moved from uh, small town Kentucky to a city in Central Asia, in the country of Kazakhstan and served there for 10 years. And, of course, now you're here uh, back in the U.S. and serving as vice president of uh, Mission Ministries with the Mission Society, as we mentioned. And uh, your your background, I think, as a missionary it qualifies you in many ways, uh, Jim, uniquely to help us better understand and address this question because, as I suggested, it wasn't that many generations ago when engaging in missions work to other people and cultures and society in places that were very different of us meant getting a passport, hopping on an airplane, and heading overseas. And today, 
day, that largely means getting up and going to work in the morning, doesn't it? No doubt. I think that uh, that missions has really become from everywhere to everywhere, and that people can can be involved in mission wherever they are. And I think, uh, in some ways, that's a positive. We still will always need people who will get on a plane and go, because uh, there's some places in the world that will never hear the gospel if somebody doesn't do that, because there's nobody around. But having said that, uh, we all know. I, I think you'd have to be in a cocoon. Uh, to not realize there are incredible needs and opportunities for sharing the gospel here in our own home country. Let's talk about attitudes concerning that very issue. I mean, there is a certain notion that believers have that we, we should live in such a fashion as we, we share our faith, we share the evangel or the, or the gospel with others. Uh, and yet, at least through the decade of the, the 80s and 90s, and, and maybe even to a certain degree today, um, a lot of uh, Christians um, do a good job at expressing our frustration over what we see going on in our culture and society today. Uh, Witness the news story that I shared um, at the top of the segment here. Uh, and we do a good job at that, and yet um, maybe our experience or our, our capacity to share our frustration is better honed than our capacity to actually share our faith. And again, at the end of the day, the question is, which of the two will have the greater impact on society around us, sharing our frustration or sharing our faith? I think you really hit on the, the crucial issue that I think the American church and the evangelical church in particular really is facing. I shared a story uh, in an article I wrote recently that, that really points this out. It was some years ago. We were still in Kazakhstan serving, and I had a, a friend who was on the faculty of a, of a small liberal arts college in the East here. And it was a college with a great Christian tradition, but like so many colleges, it had kind of wandered from that tradition in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he asked this question of me. They were about to engage some policies that were, were clearly in opposition to the biblical understanding of the faith. And, uh, and he was kind of fighting the policies and just getting really frustrated and, and feeling like he was fighting a losing battle. And he asked me this question. He said, I'm wondering if, if my mistake is trying to maintain the Christian identity of this institution, or should I learn what is it to live missionally in a non-Christian institution? And he was talking to me because as a missionary, he said, maybe I should have more of the thought of a missionary who doesn't expect the host culture to be Christian than to kind of try to fight for that. And I think that's the, the key question that, that we are faced as believers in this culture is, is which are we going to fight to, to maintain the culture? Or are we going to live missionally to invite people into a different uh, way of living? Well, certainly the mentality for many, many years, and we've seen this articulated at, at a national level, uh, historically by the likes of, of a Jerry Falwell or the likes of a Pat Robertson and others, and that is that we there's a degree to which we have to fight to maintain the culture. Certainly that notion of being um, salt and light uh, makes sense at a degree, but I wonder if there's also... A great degree, Jim, to which we kind of longingly look back toward a different time in America where we perceived it to be a Christian nation when, in fact, that's never really been entirely an, an accurate moniker for our country. And so it's almost as if we're, we're fighting to maintain something that, in the truest form, never really truly existed in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have to ask that question. I know it, it's, it's not always popular to, to question that, but you, you think about that we sometimes do pine for the great years of the 50s when we were a Christian country, and yet if you look at some of the things that were in place and the rules, some of the treatment of people in our country in the 1950s, I think all would agree it was far from Christian, um, especially look at some of the, the racial issues going on in our country at the time. 
So I think we, we sometimes have some selective memory. I, I don't mean to imply, therefore, there have been huge challenges, and certainly the, the Christian faith has fallen out of favor with the dominant culture. Uh, but I think sometimes in our, in our memory, or our, our selective memory, uh, we kind of pine for the yesteryear, and I, I really question, is that, is that what God would have us do, or is he looking for us to forge what does it look like to be a Christian in today's context rather than trying to recreate yesterday's context? And is that maybe because it's just easier to fall back to that position? There's a lot less uh, demanded of us in doing so. I mean, let's face it, we'll, we'll talk to any generation and talk about the good old days and say, well, the, the good old days. Are we talking about the good old days of the Cold War in the 1980s? Would that be the good old days of the Vietnam War in the 1970s? Would it be the good old days of, of uh, the, the spread of communism and, and enslaving the people throughout Europe in the 19? 50s, the good old days of, of the 1940s during the Second World War? Which phase of the good old days are we referring to? So it, it seems as if you're right. It's not only a very selective memory, but sometimes maybe just simply an easier way to kind of default back to, because if mm-hmm. we can just um, vent our frustration over how things have changed, it really doesn't call upon us then to be engaged in the culture, to challenge the culture, to love the culture, to live, as you suggest, in a missional fashion, which means to understand that first and foremost, it is our job to be Christ's representatives on earth. And let's face it, there's a lot more work involved in doing that than just sitting back and complaining. I think so, and, and uh, one of my colleagues, Stan Self, uh, wrote recently, and I, I love this quote, he says, when we as evangelicals are so disheartened over the state of the Church in America, what are we bemoaning? Do we mourn the loss of Orthodox gospel preaching, or do we mourn the loss of our privileged place in society? Mm. And I think that's, that's a hard question, but I think we need to ask honestly, what, what are we upset about? Um, are we really upset about the true teachings of Christianity and the transformation that the gospel brings, or are we frustrated because the the kind of position of being the dominant um, the dominant understanding of the culture that being Christian was a culturally good and acceptable thing is that is that really what we're we're losing that that means there's a higher cost of the faith than maybe we we did sense thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, probably very true. And along with that, I think, uh, coincides this notion that, let's face it, missional living in a very unchristian or hostile environment, uh, and, and certainly Christians in China understand this, Christians in the Sudan, as we speak, understand what this is like, it comes at a higher cost. And so you're right. The question is, when we talk about paying the price, is the paying the price because we're being inconvenienced, or do we understand that our very faith itself requires us to pay a price, that there is a price? for being counted amongst those that name Jesus as Lord and Savior. So maybe it's a good point for us to pause and engage in some introspection. You know, I use the Bruce Jenner story as kind of a jumping off point because everybody's been talking about it around the water cooler over the last 24 hours and many bemoaning this, this direction in which society seems to be headed. And yet, There is a bigger question here that remains unanswered for believers, and that is, um, do we long for the days of the Christian culture, or are we willing to influence the world around us uh, to understand what it really means to live out our faith missionally in a non-Christian environment? Our conversation today with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. 